0: Thank you all for being here this morning. Great to have you with us. This is an exciting time in the life of our church because we are uh, in the midst of what we're calling our Beyond Initiative. The construction has begun on the uh, two-story discipleship center that will be uh, just outside the walls of the church here. number of projects also underway. I hope they won't uh, uh, make it too difficult for you getting in and out of the church, but um, if you... If this is new to you, if you're not familiar with our Beyond Initiative and what it's all about, we do have some brochures that uh, detail that on the name tag tables on your right and left as you exit this morning. Well, today we continue a, a new series we've begun this winter going into the spring called Soul Shaping. We talk about soul shaping, we're talking about the practices God uses to shape us, to conform our lives more fully to the likeness of Jesus Christ. We've been using a book in this series, a book called The Soul Shaper by Keith Drury, and we have uh, gotten a special arrangement from the publisher, put those at our resource center, but we've sold out of books now twice, And we've contacted the publisher, and they're out of print. We contacted the author, and he had none. It's going to be a few weeks before we get more copies of the book. I'm sorry if you didn't get one. However, they are available uh, on Amazon for Kindle, The Soul Shaper by Keith Drury. Now, I want to say something right up front as we talk about spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices, this matter of soul shaping. It is really important to understand, when studying a topic like this, two very significant uh, theological terms. Um, The first is justification. Justification occurs when God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, and because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, declares a sinner to be just, forgiven, because of what Christ did for us. In a moment of time, you're saved, you're born again. In the eyes of God, you are justified, made just. I wanna stress that the spiritual practices we're talking about, things like silence and uh, uh, today's simplicity, other spiritual disciplines like fasting, prayer, Bible reading, these things do not add anything to our justification. That's been done completely by God as a result of what Jesus did on the cross when he took our place. Another key term though that's critical to understand is the, is the term sanctification. Sanctification is an ongoing process whereby God takes the justified child of his and makes them increasingly like Christ, increasingly holy throughout life. Sanctification is a process. And these spiritual practices or disciplines help to further the process of sanctification. Think of God as a great master potter and ourselves as the clay. And the spiritual practices we're talking about keep us on the potter's wheel where the loving hands of the master potter are shaping us more into conformity with the likeness and the image of Jesus. Having said that, we're going to look at a particular spiritual discipline today that um, uh, it's been common to teach on this for uh, over the last century, I suppose, but it's not one that people are particularly familiar with, and it's the practice or discipline of simplicity. Now, what do we mean we're talking about simplicity? There's not a definition in the Bible for simplicity, but the author of the book we're uh, using Kedruri suggests uh, two things that I think are important in understanding this. He writes, simplicity is intentionally paring down our lifestyles to the essentials in order to free us from the tyranny of things to focus more on spiritual life. Now, let me stress this. We're not talking about removing unnecessary things from life so we can have uh, a little more peace, a little greater feeling of peace, but to focus more on God, His kingdom, spiritual life. Another statement by Drury that you'll see, when we practice this discipline, that is of simplicity, we find the freedom and joy of an uncomplicated life. We come to have a single vision, and our focus is increasingly on God and eternal things rather than ourselves and material things. And while the Bible doesn't give us a definition of simplicity, I think the idea is very much in sync with biblical teaching. On the screen, you'll see a passage from Matthew chapter 6, teaching of Jesus. This comes out of his great Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been teaching about prayer, about fasting, about giving. And he continues in Matthew 6 with these words, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now notice carefully these next words. I think they point us to a more clear understanding of this idea of simplicity. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? The passage continues in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. I'd like to to think for a moment about this idea of the eye being healthy. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Version of the Bible I used to use, New King James Version, I think, says it this way: If your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. Well, what does it mean? I'd read that passage over and over and go, What in the world does it mean? If your eye is single, your body is full of light. What's, what's Jesus teaching us? Richard Foster is perhaps one of the best-known writers on the idea of spiritual disciplines. <clears throat> And he has an entire book on this one discipline called Simplicity. And in his book on simplicity, he digs into this term, uh, this phrase, if your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. Or if your eye is healthy, your eye is good. And he notes (coughs) that the meaning of the single eye, the healthy eye, uh, has to do with a single aim in life, a focused life and a spirit of generosity. He writes that um, singleness of purpose toward God and generosity of spirit are twins. They're both conveyed in this term, if your eye is single. And he notes that in Jesus' time, there was a phrase uh, sometimes used uh, of a person who was a greedy or covetous person. It would be said that that person was a person of an evil eye, a greedy person with an evil eye, a covetous person. And in contrast to that, a person with a single eye, healthy, clear eye, would be a person whose, whose aim was focused on God and His purposes, and this person was of a generous and an unselfish spirit. So I think we can use this idea of a single eye to to relate very closely to what we're calling simplicity. So I'm going to use those terms almost synonymously this morning. Now as we look back to or look ahead rather to the passage that Allison read a moment ago from Luke 12. Our focus will be there this morning but just a little background. Luke 12 begins with Jesus teaching immense crowds of people. In fact The chapter begins, so many thousands of the people had gathered, they were trampling one another. And he begins to teach his disciples. And Jesus, can you imagine these thousands of people, he's teaching what it means to be his follower, to be his disciple. And he says some challenging thing. He's talking about eternal truths. He's talking about the danger of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and eternal sin. And in the middle of this teaching, a man shouts out of the crowd, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Tell my brother to share. What an incredibly insignificant thing for somebody to say in interrupting Jesus teaching these eternal truths. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus then responds with one of the greatest teachings on covetousness and management of money that we find in scripture. <clears throat> and he says, in response to the man's uh, shouting, man, who may be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Those are strong words from Jesus. Covetousness, so common in our culture today, be on your guard against it. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then to illustrate this, Jesus tells a parable. parable is a story Jesus taught to illustrate a spiritual truth. And he said there was a rich man and his land produced plentifully. And he said, what am I going to do with all this abundance? So he built bigger barns to store more of his goods, more and more and more. And the parable goes on. <clears throat> the man says, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods for many years. <clears throat> many years, excuse me, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. Your life is... Is required of you tonight? And then whose goods will those be? So it will be with everyone, Jesus says, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus is essentially saying, unless you have a single eye, you're in danger of falling prey to covetousness like this man had. His life illustrates the principle, the more stuff you have, the more stuff we'll have of you. Have you discovered that in life? Reminded of um, when Beth and I, my wife and I lived on Forest Oak Drive, the street right between our church and West Forsyth High School. And um, we had a really big backyard, came up almost to the uh, West Forsyth uh, football field. And um, when we'd gotten married, I had a uh, a push mower, just an old, not self-propelled push mower. It took forever to cut the grass. And so we got a rotting lawnmower. And I I just thought this is gonna be a time saver. This is well worth it. We've got this rotting lawnmower. Now we only had a one car garage at the house we had over here. And uh, soon we realized we needed to build a a barn for it. Had some friends help us build an outdoor shed. And I'd find every spring when I'd go out to start that thing, the battery would be dead. And I would have to figure out how to charge the battery and half the time go buy a new battery. A couple times I went out and had a flat tire. Had to go get the tire repaired. Had to change the oil and I could go on and on and on. And this time-saving thing became to, came to cost a whole lot more time and money and everything else. The more stuff you have, the more stuff can have you. And this man's life is an illustration of it because he has no regard for God. He's not rich toward God. He's only concerned with himself and his stuff begins to take control. One of the beautiful things I think Jesus is teaching us about a single eye simplicity is that it can help to guard us from covetousness. He goes on in his teaching to show us how single eye simplicity can guard us against anxiety. <clears throat> and he says in verse 22 of the chapter, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on. He goes on the next section of verses and warns his disciples in verses 28 to 31, Don't seek what you're to eat or drink and do not be worried. Moving ahead to verses 34 and 34, 32 to 34, he says, fear not, little flock. So he's saying, don't be anxious, don't worry, don't fear. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Then he encourages a little downsizing. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is always coming back to the heart. This is the very same thing he said in the first verses we looked at from Matthew chapter 6. Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Jesus is teaching us we can live above anxiety if we live more fully with a single eye, single-eyed devotion to God's kingdom. It's an interesting thing in the Gospel of Luke how often Jesus is teaching about or dealing with people who are rich and the connection between their riches and spiritual life. We just read this in the parable about the rich man who kept building the barns for himself. Later in Luke, in chapter 18, Jesus encounters a real life uh, rich man who wanted to uh, follow Jesus seemingly the rich young ruler, and he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, how do you read the law? And he begins sharing the Ten Commandments and says, I've kept all these since my youth. What more do I lack? And then Jesus says, sell all your stuff, give to the poor, come follow me. Jesus saw into his heart. He saw while he kept the commandments, he noted, there was a great big idol there, and it had to be removed if he was going to be a follower of Jesus. The rich man went away sad because he had great possessions and could not part with them. I'll tell you, that story has always troubled me when I read it because I wonder, I don't, could I do that? I mean, thankfully God's never called me to do that. It's a bit encouraging to turn the page to the next chapter of Luke, chapter 19, and he encounters another rich man and this is a rich man named Zacchaeus, and Jesus kind of invites himself to his house for dinner, and there are a bunch of other people there, and with no demand whatsoever, seemingly at least not recorded in the scripture. Given by Jesus, uh, Zacchaeus stands up before his guests and says, "Behold, Lord, half the goods I'm I'm going to give half my goods I'm going to give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anybody, I'll pay back fourfold." I love the way he says. If I've defrauded anybody, i pay it back. I I wonder if he just threw that if in there for Jesus' sake. If I've defrauded anybody, I'll pay him back. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house, seeing the man's faith. Jesus deals with everybody differently in this manner of wealth. He knows if there's a major idol in our heart that needs to be removed entirely. He saw in Zacchaeus genuine faith, calling him a son of Abraham because of his faith. God gave his people early on in the early pages of the Bible a a first fruits principle. We call it the tithe or a tenth. It's It's a way of worshiping God as a constant, ongoing, regular reminder that everything we have comes from him and we give back to him as a recognition that he is our provider. Why is that important? Why is it necessary? In large part because it guards the heart, it guards us from covetousness as well as anxiety. Jesus goes on from teaching about uh, the need to be free from anxiety and worry and fear in regard to possessions, and he teaches us how a single-eye simplicity can also free us from distraction. And I think for many of us this may be the most challenging thing in life. He immediately goes into a subject that would appear to have little to do with what he's just said. And he says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Passage continues on the next slide. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table And he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watcher and the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready. That's the key term, I think. Ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus taught a number of places about the need to be ready for his return let me ask you this. In the past 30 days, how many times have you thought about Jesus' return? I'll answer that for myself as I pose the question myself thinking about that this week. And my answer was never. Not one time. I don't think it's entered my mind at all. Maybe even this year. it's a key theme in Scripture. Jesus' point here has to do with spiritual alertness and readiness to this significant idea that one day indeed the Son of Man will come. In fact, he says it pretty forcefully, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. When we live with this awareness that the world in which we live is a temporary dwelling place and Jesus will indeed return, it puts other things in perspective. The importance of the kingdom of God, the relative unimportance of uh, material things in light of that. I think one of the things that most competes with us for a single eye focus on the kingdom of God and calls us to a more simplified and less complicated life, whether it has to do with our possessions or our schedules, is this challenge of dealing with distraction because the world in which we live today right here is so incredibly complex. We are just overwhelmed with choices about all of life whether it's the news you watch or whether you uh, the food you eat or, or where you travel, we're just overwhelmed with uh, multiple choices. I finished a book uh, just a few months ago uh, by Ben Sass. The title of the book is Them. The subtitle is Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. And he's really talking about this, this seeming anger in the United States of uh, America between different groups of people and why, you know, this hatred is so common. But one of the interesting parts of the book was his emphasis on technology and understanding how it's affected us in the United States and created such um, complexity and so many different choices with which we're confronted. And he gives a really interesting example, and I'll pose it to you in the form of a question this morning. Suppose you wanted to go out this afternoon and get some ice cream, and you went to uh, a certain block of town in Winston-Salem, and and on this block, there are two ice cream shops. The first one, and and by the way, the ice cream at, at both places is comparable, very much the same, same quality at both places, but the first shop, the first store has only 3 flavors. Vanilla, chocolate, strawberry. That's it. Just 3 flavors. The other shop has 400 flavors and you can get triple mocha, fudge ripple, cappuccino latte or you can get very berry, peppermint, balsamic whatever <laughs> you want in your ice cream choice. Now which one are you going to choose? Well, All of us, we're going to say, of course, more is better. More choices are better. Of course, we'll go to the store with 400 choices. But Sass quotes in his book, studies show, and this matter has been studied, studies show that customers with 400 choices end up feeling significantly less happy afterward than the ones who went to the store with just three flavors. They experience decision, anxiety, and regret. You spend all this time and energy deciding which one you're really gonna like the best, and then when you get it, and your friend has gotten the very berry peppermint swirl, you look at it and go, That looks better. Can I taste that? That's better than what I got. I, I should have got, I wish I hadn't gotten this, I wish I'd gotten that. And he quotes psychologist Barry Swartz. And you see his words on the screen about this very matter. As the number of options increases, the costs and time and effort of gathering the information needed to make a good choice also increase. And I can see myself standing at an ice cream place like that, looking at everything and having my wife going, can I taste this, can I try that, every simple thing there. The level of certainty people have about their choice decreases in the anticipation that they will regret their choice increases it's an interesting thing all the choices we have in life contributes to the complexity and the distraction that we deal with in life but doesn't necessarily increase the happiness it's the same way if you've got 5 television channels or 500 doesn't necessarily increase the happiness. A single-eye focus on the kingdom of God helps to free us from covetousness, seeking to find our contentment and happiness in material things and, and just unendingly laying them up for ourselves. It helps to free us from anxiety so our trust is in God himself And it helps to free us from distraction. And we live in a distracting world. Things not only compete for your attention, they compete for your time. Now, I wanna pause again and emphasize something I mentioned at the very beginning. Because when we talk about spiritual disciplines, we talk about spiritual practices, we talk about simplifying life, Changing things in life, in life downsizing so that we can be more focused. I want to reinforce again. These spiritual practices, they don't add to our justification. Jesus has done all that can be done to bring you into the kingdom of God, and you should forever praise Him for that. The practices do help to further our sanctification and our participation in the great and glorious kingdom of God. And so, in summary, I think a simplified life, a single-eye life focused on the kingdom of God with a kingdom generosity can bring certain things about for us. One is a clearer vision for God and His kingdom. Another is more time to... To know and enjoy God. You know, I'm sure for many of us in this room, we would say that the the biggest struggle I have is time. Is time. I'm sure you've said to a friend or spouse, family member, I just don't, there's just no way I can get everything I have to do. Uh, And I know some of you are that way. As I hear you talk about your schedules, how demanding they are. You feel like you have no time. (coughs) Read something recently, just stuck with me so strongly. I, I, I wrote it in a little note and put it on my little desk where I study at home. A guy named Roy Lesson, he said there's always time enough in a day to do the will of God. And I thought, well, that makes sense. God's will isn't for me to do stuff he didn't give me time to do. So if I if I can't get everything done in a day that I feel like I must do, I must be doing something that is not the will of God for me. More time to know and enjoy God. Greater contentment with what we have. Maybe three flavors really is better than 400. Maybe just a few television channels is better than 500. Maybe one extracurricular activity for your child is better than five. Better for your child and better for, for you too. Greater Generosity. You know, one of the things I really enjoyed and something I think was very healthy about our, our Beyond campaign is that it forces us to, to pare down non-essential things so that we can step into greater generosity. A bit of a, a downsizing to, to free up margin for greater generosity. And then a single eye focus, simplified life for the glory of God can result in greater readiness for the Lord's return. And by that I mean more spiritual alertness, more living attuned to God, his kingdom, his vision. The recognition that if Jesus doesn't return first, and it's hundred percent, if Jesus doesn't return first, we will all die. We're certain about that at some point. And as Keith says in his book, death is the final downsizing. It's the ultimate downsizing. Because the Bible says very clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can take nothing out. There's none of it going out with us. And so, as we draw to a close, I want to ask you to just join me in prayer for a moment. And then as we conclude Uh, The prayer, I'm going to invite you, if you'd like to do this, to join me in a very, very simple uh, statement of faith. In fact, one of the most widely used, probably the most widely used in the history of the Christian church, the Apostles' Creed. But first, let's pray, shall we? Father, we come in the name of our Lord Jesus. How I thank you. That he shed his blood on the cross to liberate us from the judgment for our sins. That we might call you our father. And we might know you and share eternity with you forever. And while we're on this earth, Lord, you call us to a life of growing love for you and knowledge of your will. To be conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus. Lord, would you show us today, if there are things in our lives, in our use of time, our use of money, our schedules, our perspective, our attitude, our worries, things that need to change, would you give us the grace and power by the Holy Spirit to take the steps so that you, the Master Potter, would bring about those changes. And we ask this in Jesus' name.